Welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. You know, one of the greatest privileges of hosting this show is the people that God allows me to meet to share their stories. Today, I want to take you to an interview I did way back in 2003. Dr. Billy Graham called him the man who most influenced my ministry. The man I'm talking about is Dr. Stephen Olford. He was 85 years old when we sat down in his library at the Stephen Olford Center for Biblical Preaching to do this interview. He transitioned from this life the following year in August of 2004. I'm so grateful to have known Dr. Stephen Olford and to call him my friend. Let's join that conversation now back in 2003. I have the unique privilege of being in the study and office of Dr. Stephen Olford. This program today is coming to you recorded from the location of the Stephen Olford Center for Biblical Preaching in Memphis. Dr. Olford, welcome. Thank you so much, Byron. It's a joy to have you in my study. Dr. Olford, you right now are 85 years old. Believe it or not, 85 and some days. <laughs> that was the 29th of March. And you've been in the ministry now for 65 years. 65 years, nonstop. You were actually born in ministry. Home for you was on the mission field. That's absolutely right, Byron. I was born on the mission field of a British father, came from Plymouth, saved, incidentally, under the ministry of an American evangelist, the successor to D.L. Moody, Dr. Torrey, and an American mother who came from Blaisdell, New York. They met on the mission field, and of course, I came along eventually, and two brothers. So we have Stephen, Paul, and John. John has passed on to glory. My other brother, Paul, is alive but retired from a life of a dentist, and I'm still preaching away. Dr. Olford, one thing I would like to have you comment on was an experience you had as a child growing up in South Africa on the mission field. One day as your dad was seeking God in prayer, the Lord laid on his heart to go and minister to a tribe of people over 200 miles away. The village was not easily accessible. You had to fight your way through brush. There was a terrible drought that year and water was scarce. It was a dangerous venture for you. Yet your father had this faith and trust that the Lord wanted him to reach people for Christ. Yes, this was in the colony of Angola, what was known as Portuguese West Africa. And every now and again, Father made these itineraries in order to reach the unreached, that is, tribes that never heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We gathered our band of evangelists and carriers who carried the food and a certain amount of water and, of course, the tents, mosquito netting, and all the rest that we needed for those kind of trips. And everything went well until we hit a very thick forest that had to be literally cut open by our advanced men in order to make the points of the compass that had already been worked out by my father. There were no roads, not even trails. Uh, but he had a way of doing things that I've never known any other missionary, in my experience anyway, and he would plot where the villagers were, or the, the particular tribe, and then create a map, and then follow it. And uh, the front men would cut down the brush, uh, sometimes even a tree, and uh, the caravan would follow. And we'd been traveling for several days when suddenly we became aware of the fact that there was no water. We had consumed our supply. 
So we dropped everything, set up our tents, and camped there for a number of hours. We had a very small amount of water for the family, and there were five of us, my father, mother, and myself and two brothers. And the men went out to find water, either in wells or a river or some place where we could draw water. And one day passed, two days, three days, four days, still no return of these men. And we began to be very concerned. Of course, every day, Father drew us as a family to our knees, read the word, and prayed concerning this need, and especially his burden for reaching the tribe. Then things became desperate. And we became literally so dehydrated that one of my brothers literally almost went out of his mind. Uh, We chewed vegetables, that is to say, grass, leaves, anything that had juice. I can see my father now skinning even the stems of branches in order to extract by chewing something which amounted to moisture, nothing to do with a drink. The situation became desperate. Once again, we threw ourselves on the mercy of God and repeatedly had prayer meetings throughout the day. But I could see now in my memory the bulging eyes of this younger brother of mine. Our tongues were parched, our throats were dry, and... It was becoming painful, and we reach the utter point of desperation when Father draws together under the shade of a tree, and we we'll knelt down, and I never forget his absolute heart cry that was articulated at that moment. I can't remember verbatim every word, but I know it was something like, Oh God, we thank you for your grace and mercy that ever saved us, and brought us into the family. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which you have used the ministry, for souls that have been saved, for churches that have been established, for hearts and minds that have been transformed, for entire tribes that have been captured. And Lord, if this is the end of the ministry, we lay our lives down. Grant us some release and pain as we enter glory. But Lord, there could be agonies, and we cry to you for your touch upon us. But Lord, you are the God who answered Elijah's prayer when he cried, heavens, hold the rain. And then three years later, heavens, give your rain. And you answered his prayer in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises of your word, On the ground of Calvary, I command, Lord, I command that you pour out rain and deliver us from this dilemma. It was a tremendous prayer. He included every one of us. We rose from our knees and within a matter of minutes, clouds began to gather from nowhere, nowhere, right overhead, presently. There was a flash of lightning, a roar of thunder, and the rain came down. In deluge, in deluge, we put out every pot and pan, our canvas bath, and we filled and 
quietly, prayerfully, got on our knees and thanked God before we even took a sip. And then we began to drink carefully in case the entire system was affected and quenched our thirst. And sometimes I use that illustration when I talk about, if any man thirst, let him come to me. He that believeth into me out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Speaking, of course, of the Holy Spirit. And I often ask our folk in a privileged land like America like this, do you know anything of real thirst? Can you conceive of the concept of thirst? If you want to know, and this is the story I often tell. Dr. Olford, as you advise men as they're preparing for ministry, what are some of the points or the things you feel are so very important for them to focus on? I would say number one is develop your devotional life, your walk with God. With all the problems we face right here at our center amongst pastors who are depressed, distressed, or have fallen in one way or another, invariably it started with neglecting the daily devotional life. Our Lord never missed his quiet time. Morning by morning, he opened his ear to listen to the voice of his Father. So I would say the disciplined devotional life. Secondly, make sure that you give time to your wife and children if you happen to be married, because I believe that if a man knows not how to take care of his own home, how shall he take care of the church of God? And the church and especially the world, is watching what your family life is like here in the open as well as behind closed doors. And to me, a broken family altar is a sign also of danger, serious danger in a pastor's life. Then, thirdly, and most importantly, as far as preaching is concerned, learn how to expound the Word of God, to exegete the Word, expound the Word, apply the Word, illustrate the Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's what we do here at the Stephen Olford Center for Biblical Preaching. Our entire statement is that we are here to edify and encourage pastors and lay leaders in the art of expository preaching, and exemplary living in the power of the Holy Spirit to the end that the church may be revived and the world receive the gospel of the living God through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to be our Savior. And I say that study of the Word of God is the primary task of every pastor. Yes, visiting is important. Yes, organizational matters are important. Yes, administration is important, but his task is to feed the flock of God. It's rather interesting that when that situation took place in the early church and the Hellenistic Jews were being forgotten and neglected and the ministration of clothes and money and food and so on, the pastors wanted to down tools and go and fix this problem. And God broke in in some miraculous way and said, it is not reason that you should abandon the word of God to serve tables. That's not a humble task. That's an important task. But it's not your task. Choose you out from among you, men of qualifications, and those qualifications are pretty terrific in Acts chapter 6. And their task was this, resolve the problems and release the pastors. 
because the Spirit of God said that they might give themselves exclusively to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And that's where the failure is across our country today. Let me add one other to make the four. And that is, of course, the spirit of evangelism and missions. If a church ceases to be a missionary church, then quite frankly, God is going to bypass that church in blessing. It's rather interesting that God had to jump over, if I may put it that way, the church at Jerusalem, to which church the commission was given to witness first in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jerusalem didn't do that. And God sent persecution to scatter them. And instead of Jerusalem, Antioch became the watershed of missionary enterprise after Pentecost. And the reason was simply this, that they were an evangelizing church and had the vision for reaching the world. So that would be number four in the list I mentioned. Dr. Olford, with the thousands over the years of your ministry, ministering to different pastors, what do you see as some of the greatest struggles of pastors? To me, there are a number of problems, Byron, but I would put alongside them these three in particular. Indiscipline. I'll say one of the greatest sins of a pastor is indiscipline. Failing to determine to do what God has called us to do. There's so many distractions. So many distractions. The second one is a problem, I would say, is the moral life. It's a sad fact to learn, as Charles Coulson puts it in his book called The Body, that the average pastor today has moral problems and that we are quickly reaching, as ministers, the national average in divorces. The third is the failure, and I say this to pastors who may be listening to me now, is to train men. We thank the women for the mighty work they do in the churches. But how often can a pastor depend on a band of men whose hearts the Lord has touched and inculcating the principles, the biblical principles of leadership? We need leaders more today than ever in the history of the church. Then I would say another great danger is the temptation of pastors to turn to what I call novel methods. And I call them novel methods that have been tried by time to try and improve their church instead of maintaining what I call the well-tried principles that have endured over the centuries and find out what's wrong with what they're doing and, of course, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit and with aggressiveness, getting down to it. The average church today very rarely receives into membership somebody who's been saved out of the community. Instead, it's what I call musical chairs, Saints coming from one church to another. And the biological addition that often comes when families have children and they're saved and become members. But as far as reaching the unreached, I think we're failing tremendously in this country. Dr. Olford, looking through the years of your personal ministry, what do you consider to be your greatest accomplishments? Well, there's nothing I've ever been able to do that God, by His Spirit, didn't do through me. Only by the grace of God, I am what I am. But if I were to list what I feel are some of my satisfying achievements, was, first of all, to come to this country after God stirred my heart and to utilize mass media as we know it in its 
what I call developed form today. In my day, to get onto radio from Calvary Baptist Church in New York City and literally reach the world in every part of the world within one hour's expository preaching church service and to know of thousands of Africans today, in West Africa especially, who would stand to say, I was converted through your Calvary Church hour. And also to feed missionaries who were starved in the jungles as they listened to the exposition of the Word of God. To me, that was a great achievement. Now everybody's doing it. But I'm talking about 1959 onwards, when very few pastors literally broadcast to the world. In fact, at that time, there was only one in the Lutheran Church who uh, had what I would call a trans-oceanic program, but certainly not around the world. That was a great achievement. The other, I would say, is the evangelistic spirit that God has given me to preach the gospel every Sunday night at Calvary. Sunday morning, I literally ministered to the saints, obviously, going deep with the things of God. Wednesday night was our Bible study of the deepest depth, but Sunday night was an ongoing crusade from 59 to 73, unbroken. Everybody in hearing range around New York knew that we were in an unbroken crusade. The service was planned as if it were in some big stadium. When nobody could get anybody into their churches on a Sunday night, we were full. And especially 80% of them young people. Now they're all over the world as missionaries. I must confess those two events, radio, we had television, of course, but also outreach in missions and evangelism right in the heart of New York. Where and how did you meet your lovely wife, Heather? It was a wonderful meeting ordained of God. When I launched out into the ministry as an evangelist and preacher, one situation I had to settle right away, and that was, how was I going to handle the opposite sex in my invitations or my contacts or my counseling opportunities because I could see that as a danger? And I went away and prayed about that. And God gave me a revelation from the early chapters of Genesis. It wasn't my task to find a mate. Adam didn't go around the Garden of Eden with a baseball bat hitting bushes to find a woman. He didn't know that such a person existed. But when God shared that fact with him, he was prepared to resign to the will of God. We read that a great sleep came upon him. In other words, he rested in the will of God. And at the right time, the right moment, he was awakened by God with a wife made absolutely perfectly suited to him. And to me, that's a biblical principle. And I determined as a covenant to God that I would never, never seek a partner. I did meet Heather, Heather Brown, as she was called, in evangelistic crusades because she was one of the leading pianists in England at that time. I met her at conference centers and so forth. But there was a particular moment in time when God gave me the conviction in my heart that Heather Brown was to be my wife. We never dated. If there was a date at all, it was the date when I proposed to her and asked her father for her hand. He was delighted. Our hearts were united. And she's been with me now 55 years. 
What do you consider to be the most delightful part of your relationship with Jesus Christ? I know nothing more wonderful than over and above my daily quiet time to seek a few days away when both Heather and I can enjoy fellowship together with the Lord, but individually we can set aside unbroken, unlimited, and undisturbed hours of just sweet communion, especially in a restful place with pleasant surroundings, where with closed eyes or open eyes, I just sit and meditate upon the things of God and commune with my Lord. There's nothing more wonderful in all the world. Dr. Olford, you mentioned that your wife, Heather, is a pianist. You have a love for music. I love music, and I believe God ordained that music and message should be linked together. I've often said, great hymnology linked to great theology goes up in great doxology. And I'm a great believer in matching message and music as John Wesley and Charles Wesley did throughout their entire ministry. And I feel that that use of music is conducive to true worship, especially in the act of preaching. But of course, I love classical music as well. And nothing is more enjoyable than to go to a great concert of great music with my wife and listen to men like Van Cliburn, for instance, who was a member of our church in New York City, right opposite Carnegie Hall. So that's where he performed many times and lived in the same complex the Hotel Salisbury, as we lived so many, many times we went to hear him in concert, and those are tremendous days. When you have a time to pull away from the ministry, what do you like to do? I used to think that the seaside was the best, but that wasn't good for my skin, or the possibility of melanoma or something like that. So I like to get up into the highlands, and as Heather and I enjoy playing golf together. I believe that Heather was born with a club in her hand, and uh, I had to learn golf. She knew it right from childhood and can still hit a long ball right down the middle. And just to be together, hear the birds sing, smell the fresh mowed grass, and compete with each other and with our scores is one of the delightful relaxations we have. Dr. Olford, in closing our time together right now, looking at the church today, what word would you speak to it? I believe we need a heaven-sent revival. And until the church comes to a point of desperation, and I don't know what God will have to do to bring us to that point of desperation, and we hit the floor, as it were, with our knees, and with a heart cry and fasting, pray for revival, I see no hope for our land. No hope for our land at all. How is it Amsterdam 1, Amsterdam 2, Amsterdam 3, and at one of those Amsterdam, a wonderful man of God from Romania was the speaker, Joseph Song. And he told the story of how God sent revival to Romania and deposed the great, what I call Saddam of that day, a notorious man, and revival swept the land. And I sat there quietly wept that such a thing could happen in our day. And I made my way through that huge crowd and grabbed him by the arm and said, 
Joseph, let's go into a quiet spot. I want to talk to you. We talked about revival. Now I said, Joseph, you've had some education in America, some of your training in America. Tell me this. Can what you describe in Romania take place in America? A moment or two, pause. Then very sadly, he shook his head. He said, no, I don't think so. I said, Joseph, what do you mean? Well, he said, listen, America does not sense any need. They don't need anything. I said, what do you mean? Well, like the church of Laodicea, their language is, I am increased with riches and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And as long as that spirit is alive in America, I see no, no way that there can be a church-wide revival. I'm not saying that churches individually can't come into a living experience of revival through the preaching of the pastor or the visiting revivalist. But in terms of a nationwide revival, like the great three revivals that have taken place in America in the past, I see no hope at this point, and it makes me very sad. But I'm preaching that message. It's time for America to awake. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, that's desperation, and turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and pray. That's the great thrust of that text. And pray. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. And I believe that's God's way of revival. Today's Mid-South Viewpoint is brought to you by Navage. Just think about all the nasty stuff we breathe in every day. You know, the dust, allergens, bacteria, pollen, pollution. What are we breathing? Well, if you wash your hands and brush your teeth every day, then why aren't you cleaning your nose to clean out all that junk that's trapped up in there? Let me tell you about this product. If you suffer from allergies, sinus infections, or are worried about what you're breathing in, it's called Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E. What's Navage? Well, it's the world's only nose cleaner with powered suction. People that have suffered from lifelong allergies call Navage a complete game changer. They are breathing more clearly, sleeping better, snoring less, and feeling a whole lot better. In fact, 90% of people who use Navage report feeling healthier. Experience what it's like to truly breathe better, sleep deeper, and feel healthier. Go ahead and visit Navage.com. That's Navage.com. Or you can find Navage at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Target. Navage. N-A-V-A-G-E.